0: Thank you. guys welcome back to revive school here we are lesson three job four i had to think through this kevin kevin's playing mind games on me is it job or job it's job four here we are in the wisdom books also known as the poetic books of just you have job psalms proverbs ecclesiastes and the song of solomon they all kind of have a same feel where there's something personal that all of us can glean from now think about this. In Job 1, again, here's the big picture. You have the Lord and Satan, right? You have this dialogue going about, oh, hey, by the way, I think, yes, 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 you can choose Job, my servant, a man of integrity, one who fears God and one who turns away from evil. You can go ahead. God allows Satan to attack him, but not physically at this point, but everything with his possessions, his family, his kids die. Then the second test comes in, right? Right. Satan says, hey, I'd like to do it again, but this time I want to attack him. I want to go for his body. And so he brings about what we see in Job 2, 7, boils. Boils are coming in. But yet, despite all of that, he continues to praise God. He doesn't turn away. In fact, his wife tries to get him, correct, to turn away from God. Uh, His friends come in and his friends just, what do they do, Kevin? They sit there. They just sit there. They sit there quietly for seven days days. And they say nothing. And then finally in Job three, he just begins to vent. He begins to vent to his friends who are just sitting there and listening. And so this is after the the venting session, after the friends are just sitting there. In fact, Kevin, you can go. Can you go to the picture of his friends? So for seven days, the friends sit there, they stare at him and like, oh, oh." but they're just his buddies. They're comforting him. And then in Job three, Job just releases himself. He's like, oh, I can't do this. There's just a lot here. So what you're going to see in Job 4 and really the rest of the book is his friends who we thought were his buddies, who thought were to bring comfort. We thought who we were here to be like, man, Job, you can do this. Now it starts to take a weird twist. So now who are his buddies? Well, we've talked about this before. You have Eliphaz. Okay, now Eliphaz is going to be known as kind of like a mystic. Okay, I'll explain that what I mean here in a little bit. He spoke with the most respect, okay, and restraint, okay? Then you have Bildad. We're going to get to him later on in this week, who would be considered like an attorney, okay? He is going to be very direct in what he says and less courteous, okay? He's pretty more black and white. And then Zophar, okay, He's going to be more dogmatic, a dogmatist. okay? and what he's going to be, he's going to be more blunt (laughs) and he's going to get right to the point and he's definitely going to come across very, very harsh. These are the three friends that remember for a while, for seven days, they were quiet. But after Job three, after he releases and just says, man, this is how I'm feeling. Eliphaz says, hey, you know, I've got some opinions about what you just said. And so that's where we're going to come to this point today. Now, I want to just say this. (laughs) After we start learning and getting to know his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, can you go to Job 13, verse 5? This is really what uh, Job wanted them to do. So after they sat there quietly, Job says in Job 13, 5, if only you would shut up and let that be your wisdom. In other words, the seven days was probably the best part. Yeah, let's go back to the quiet period, guys. I just needed to vent and now you're unloading on me. (sighs) It's kind of crazy here. And so there's an interesting approach to this. Look, I'm not a counselor. Uh, For two years at at the church, I was an associate pastor. You really had to do a a little bit more different counseling. And so I kind of understand a little bit of of a mentality here. And I mean, a counselor, you're supposed to comfort and listen with the heart. After Job 3 took place, after he vented, you should respond, uh, not just with words, but also with feelings. And I love what, I love what MacArthur says here. Don't, you cannot heal a heart. And I think this is really important right here as we go to today. You don't heal a heart with logic, but with love. And I think is, look, as we begin to study the life of their friends, There's nothing love about this. They become three religious dudes. And it's all about what do they know and how can they shove it down his throat rather than actually caring about, man, how are your boils feeling today? In fact, Kevin, can you go to Ephesians 4, verse 15. Look, I'm just going to tell you, I I am so sometimes so driven. The Lord really spoke to me before we began to unpack Job. He's like, Kyle, I, I need you to be softer, and Ephesians 4:15 says, "But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Whenever you drop truth, please make sure it matches with love." And that's pretty hard for me, because as the return of Christ is getting closer, I get tired of people playing games, but that still doesn't mean that I cannot say things in genuine love. And these guys, they might have been appalled. Look at their faces about how he looked, but you still got to love him. And so that's kind of where we're going to go today. So the guy that we're going to talk about today, his name is Eliphaz, okay? Eliphaz is who we're going to talk about. So in Job 4, verse 1, let's just use this, don't heal a heart with logic, but with love mentality. Let's just see how Eliphaz does today. All right, what you're going to see in the first, really, first four verses, and and really this is what MacArthur uh, breaks down as well very clearly is what is Eliphaz's approach, okay? Here is his approach, okay? In verses one through four, then Eliphaz, a Temanite, replied, should anyone try to speak with you when you are exhausted? Yet who can keep from speaking? You know, so right now, it, this is kind of like, Rich, we've talked about this, the, the sandwiches. What do we call those sandwiches? Reprimand sandwiches. Reprimand sandwiches, that that first part is really nice. It's really good. That middle part, pfft, no way, man. You let him have it. And then at the end, what do you do, Rich? Eh, you soften it back up. Yeah, you kind of soften it. This is what Eliphaz is doing. He's totally softening this. He he he's trying to be positive. He's even actually being a, a little bit of of gentle. He's not upset at this point. In fact, he says in verse three, "Indeed, you have instructed many and have strengthened weak hands." Job, like man, you you've done some. Good, some good things. So this is his approach. But in verse four, he says, your words have steadied the one who was stumbling and braced the knees that were buckling. In other words, Job, I just want you to let you know, which one do you guys think is Eliphaz? Let's just start identifying these guys. Probably this guy over here. He looks, you know, he doesn't look as appalled as these guys. So Eliphaz is being complimentary. He's saying, you know, you have done good things for people. In other words, I love what James Moffat said, right words spoken at right time with the right motive can make a difference in the lives of others. And that's what you've done. You've spoken truth. You've spoken uh, love into people. And it's actually brought about stability to those that were buckling knees. In fact, Wearsby then says, words can nourish those who are weak and encourage those who are defeated. There's nothing worse than somebody that's beat down, they've had a rough day, and you're like, hey, sucks to be you. See you later. No, man, hey, do you, do you, need, do you need some help? Can I help? Can I help you? Man, I know it's been a hard day, but man, I, I really appreciate what you've done for me this week. Your words have steadied the one who was stumbling, embraced the knees that were buckling. And that's what Eliphaz does. He actually compliments Job at the very beginning. But you have to be careful about what this looks like. That's just the softening. You want to just say, well, I wonder what political party you work for. Sounds like he's a lobbyist who's beginning to set the stage. Hey, Job, I really like this, but oh, by the way, I'm bringing the hammer. That's exactly what he begins to do. He brings forth what we would consider his accusation. And that comes in verses 5 through 11. So his approach is soft, but then his accusations come in in verse 5. He says, but now this, that this has happened to you, this, <laughs> this, you have become exhausted. It strikes you and you are made. Isn't it your piety, your confidence and the integrity of your life, your hope? Isn't this an, an interesting, ironic rebuke or is it a subtle reminder? What do you guys think? Is this a rebuke or is this a reminder? I don't know. It's an interesting question to ask. In fact, if Job is living, as Wearsby says, a a godly life, Eliphaz argues that he has nothing to fear. Continues on in verse seven. Consider who has perished when he was innocent. Where have the honest been destroyed? What is he already implying, you guys? That he's not necessarily the man of integrity and fearing God and... Because he's suffering. And he says this in verse 8, Kevin, to support exactly what you just said. In my experience, those who plow injustice and those who sow trouble reap the same. In other words, you're only getting these boils and all of these issues because you've brought them on yourself. And in fact, if you plow injustice, you're going to get injustice. If you sow trouble, you're going to actually reap trouble. But didn't he just his approach in verses one through four was, hey, man, you got great words. You're doing a great thing. You bring stability to people. But oh, by the way, from my experience. So he's trying to do it respectful. I've just seen anybody that's in this situation. You brought it on yourself. And in fact, in verse nine, it says this. They perish, actually, at a single blast from God and come to an end by the breath of his nostrils The lion may roar and the fierce lion growl, but the fangs of young lions are broken. The strong lion dies if it catches no prey. And the cubs of the lioness are scattered. All right, man, the basic premise. This becomes the basic premise of all three friends. Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar all basically say the same exact stinking thing. Job, you brought this on yourself. From our experience, hey, just from what I've seen, I mean, I, th- I think this is probably your problem. So what I want to do is I want to explain this guy's bad theology. Okay, uh, Kent Hughes, I love Kent Hughes' writings. He kind of gives you four things of how bad Eliphaz's uh, theology is. Okay, so we're going to kind of go that. Now, remember, This is what we would call bad theology. Now, whenever we teach people how to share the gospel, we always do what not to do skits. This is considered not to have this theology. This is bad theology. We don't like this theology. Don't live according to this theology. But Kevin, whose theology is this? Becomes ours a lot of times. It does become ours, but it's Eliphaz's. Okay, so this is Eliphaz's bad theology class. Okay, number one, he believes that God is absolutely in control. Now, some of this bad theology could be right. Okay, so, I mean, we would agree that God is absolutely in control, correct? Yes. So we're actually okay with that one. Okay, but here's what happens. In number two, here's what Eliphaz says. God, he also says, is absolutely just and fair you guys have any problem with that one the second half why, why don't what do you what do you mean why don't you like that well our idea of fair isn't necessarily gods gods i mean in reality he is just and fair but it's not the same as our mentality right just and fair so different scale So in reality, though, God is fair. It's just not how we perceive is right. Correct? Yeah. So God is fair. It's just not what we perceive. So in reality, you're still okay with this. It's just our mentality that doesn't seem fair. So we're all on the same page, okay? All right. this this, This number two, though, for Eliphaz's theology, this is where it begins to get bad. If God is always just and fair then this is the friend's theology. This is their approach of they look at Job and say, okay, now this is why this has happened. And so this is going to be a little bit longer. So therefore, God always punishes wickedness. And he blesses. What am I going to say? You think? Righteousness. Always. That's that's our idea of just and fair. That's correct. And in fact, here's what I like about what he wrote here, and not that I agree with it because I don't. If God, but this is exactly what you're saying, Kevin, if God were ever to do otherwise, he would be un. Just. Right? So this is where Eliphaz's theology went bad. Well you start you start putting putting God in a box that way because you say that he has to react this way. Does God always have to punish wickedness? No. Does God always have to bless righteousness? No. But these three friends, at least according to Eliphaz, his whole theology in verses 5 through 11 is, I mean, go back to verse 8. If you plow injustice and those who sow trouble, you reap the same. If you do bad, you will get bad. If you do good, you will get good. Like, this is the mentality, and it's always like that. If I work hard enough and I do the right things, God will bless me. A hundred percent. Absolutely, Kevin. I just wish my friends would shut up is what he wants. Because this is the transition that he's going to have to deal with now from Job 4 through Job 42. Is this bad theology? And the reason I wanted to really slow down on this is, is that they believe God is actually in control. They believe that God is just and fair. And if that is the case, he's always going to punish wickedness and he's always going to bless righteousness. That's really important to understand when you go to number four. When you go to his last point of bad theology. Okay, so the last point of of bad theology is therefore, if I or Job, right, if I suffer, I must have sinned, and what am being punished? justly for my sin. So here you have, you guys, this is the where it went wrong. If God always blesses righteousness and punishes wickedness, therefore, if I am going through a hard time with lots of boils, or if I have diarrhea, or if I have flaky skin, or if I have burning of the bones, I must have sinned. So I want to, I want to go back just real quick. I want to go back, if we can, Kevin, to verse 8. I want to read through 8, 9, 10, and 11, and then I want to pull back again. I want to explain how this makes sense now of why he would use this argument. Okay. In my experience, those who plow injustice and those who sow trouble reap the same. Okay. Now, Wearsby says that judgment. Here's what you got to understand. Sometimes then with this thinking, it may be gradual, like the growing of a crop for harvest. So like it, it's a, a progression. Okay, they perish in verse nine at a single blast from God and they come to the end by the breath of his nostrils or God's judgment could instantly be sudden like a storm. So three and four of his bad theology, it could come gradually or it could come instantly. Now, if you go to verse 10, the lion may roar and the fierce lion growl, but the fangs of your young lions are broken. The reality is it could just be a straight on attack of a lion right then and there. I just like this image of it. It's gradual. It could come right away. Or it could be you've heard people say, oh, man, I just got attacked. In verse 10, it actually supports. Yes, you could have been attacked. But not based on three and four of your theology of punished wickedness and bless righteousness. It could just be the enemy is attacking you because God is allowing it to happen. So in Psalm 91, can we go there for a second? And Kevin, I actually want you to start in in verse one, if we can. This is going to seem long, but hang in here for me, because here's what happens, you guys. As you walk with integrity, as you walk fearing God, as you walk uh, 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 and turning away from evil, you want to keep the Lord. You want to ask the Lord for protection. So Psalm 91 becomes a prayer for me. The one who lives under the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So think about this, though. Hang on here. Think about this. Like the psalmist is saying, God, you're my refuge. God, you're my fortress. I need you to protect me in this process. And in verse three, here we go. For he himself will deliver you from the hunter's nets, the hunter's net from the destructive plague. He will cover you with his feathers. You will take refuge under his wings. His faithfulness will be a protective shield. This mentality... Okay, yes, it could be from physical attacks. I mean it could come from spiritual attacks, but this is the mental I want you to have this understanding. The lion is trying to come, the storm is trying to come, yes, even the the um, well let 's just leave it at that. this is the mentality, and we need to keep praying the psalm ninety one prayer, Lord, will you please be a protective shield for me psalm ninety one verse five you will not fear the the terror of the night, the arrow that flies by day, the plague that stalks in darkness or the pestilence that ravages at noon, verse seven. Though a thousand fall at your side and a 10,000 at your right hand, the pestilence will not reach you. Verse eight, you will only see it with your eyes and witness the punishment of the wicked. Verse nine, because you have made the Lord my refuge, the most high, your dwelling place. No harm will come to you. No plague will come near your tent for he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you in all your ways. Why? Because Satan, the fallen angel is trying to knock you out. You ask the Lord to send his angels and they'll support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against A stone. You'll tread on the lion. I love that. So here you have the lion attack found in Job 4. But if you have this mentality, and I'm not saying you guys that God's not going to allow this to happen. I'm just saying when you wake up, Psalm 91, Lord, I want to tread on the lion and the cobra. I don't want the lion to attack me. I want to tread on it. You will trample the young lion and the serpent. Why I think that's really interesting. Kevin, if you go back to Job 4, verse 10, just for a second. Look at this. It says the lion may roar and the fierce lion growl. But look at this. But the fangs of young lions are broken. Here's the exact same comparison as Psalm 91. If you go back now here, you have the young and the old. In Psalm 91, you'll tread on the lion and the cobra. You'll trample the young lion and the serpent. Who is your refuge in this time? And then in verse 14, we're almost done because he's lovingly devoted to me. I will deliver him. I will exalt him because he knows my name. Verse 15 When he calls out to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and give him honor. Verse sixteen. I will satisfy him with a long life and show him my salvation. Now you could say, Well, man, that that could be kind of confusing because if you if you're looking to bless the Lord, God's gonna bless you. All I know is that every day I want to turn to the Lord for Psalm ninety one, like God gave this to me April fifth and April sixth of two thousand and one. God, I need you to be my refuge, I need you to be my shield, I need you to be my fortress. And in this nothing can come my way. And I remind God of that. I can't tell you how many times I've walked through my house. God, I'm reminding you of this promise. Because the enemy would love to come and just send a quick attack on your family. He'd love to come send a quick attack against you. And so as long as you continue to cry out to him, even if the attacks come, you know God is in control. And so here you have Eliphaz, bad theology. He approached it by, hey, I'm a nice guy. And by the way, Job, I like what you're doing, but oh, by the way, your accusations. Oh, you would not be doing this unless you've done something wrong. So he has an approach. He has an accusation. And then Weirsby then just says, finally, what Eliphaz says is he brings about his arguments. And he kind of just lets him have it. Uh, verses 12 through 21, we'll put it there. He says, the word was brought to me in secret. My ears caught a whisper of it. Well, how do we know that this is even true? Eliphaz all of a sudden has an experience that maybe he had a vision. Maybe he heard a message. What was the message? Was this message a direct revelation from God? But it just seems like he has credibility just because he says something came to me in secret. Like, anybody can do that. Well, Eliphaz does. And he says, among unsettling thoughts from visions in the night, in other words, I've seen things from the Lord when deep sleep descends on men, fear and trembling came over me and made all my bones shake. A wind passed by me and I shuddered with fear. And so he's trying to, he's trying to build credibility with what he's going to say. A figure stood there, but I could not recognize its appearance. A form loomed before my eyes and I heard a, A quiet voice. And in verse 17, here's what I heard. Can a person be more righteous than God or a man more pure than his maker? He says, if God puts no trust in his servants and he charges his angels with foolishness, how much more those who dwell in clay houses, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like a moth? He reiterates in his argument, his first argument is based on, I should have just said this, is one is his experience. Not saying that's actually a whole lot of credibility. But then he says in verse 20, they're smashed to pieces from dawn to dusk. They perish forever while no one notices. Are their tent cords not pulled up? They die without wisdom. And what you see really is, is then he begins to make an observation in chapters 5 1 through 7 so his arguments become experience and observation so Kevin what, what do you think his whole point in his arguments what is he, what's he getting at here you think I think he's just pulling it out of his own head Yeah, like yeah. he's not he, it, it's not he's just trying to make something up to try and come up with an answer which Job has not asked for yeah he just vented yeah he just vented and he just he didn't ask say, hey what do you guys think and I think Eliphaz is just saying, this is what I think. So Eliphaz over here, he's, he's just speaking in, right? He has an approach. He has these accusations. Now he has these arguments based on experiences right now that we know of. And here's what I think is interesting. You remember when Satan twisted scripture just enough before Jesus that it sounded right? Like, hey, do you want this? Well, all you have to do is this. Hey, do you, are you hungry? Do you want to eat this? All you have to do is this. And so it was just enough twist. That's what I think he's doing here. And I love what Wearsby says. He says, Eliphaz is not telling the whole story here about God and man. Yes, man does live in a house of clay that does turn to dust. And yes, man's life can be snuffed out like swatting a moth or pulling down a tent. Like it can just instantly, it can happen like that. But there's another picture to all of this that he doesn't say. There's not the, remember we talked about the sandwich? He doesn't have a good part of the end. He has hey here's positive here's some bad but where's the bottom part? The bottom part he actually leaves off of his message. But remember man is actually made in God's image. And the God who made him is a God of grace and mercy and justice. And so automatically he puts Job in this posture of like you're just you're nothing, you're worthless, you're he can just crush you or He actually made you in an image to look like him. And so it's kind of this weird twist of messages. And Eliphaz, you know what it really comes down to? He just wants to vent. This message of Eliphaz, in a time of suffering for his friend Job, he says, oh, I'm actually kind of delighting in this. You're wrong, I'm right. When a spirit of religion kicks in, you will not see comfort. You'll only see logic. You'll only see law. You will not see love. And all I want to just challenge you guys with is don't heal the heart with logic, but with love. Kevin, give it to Ephesians 4, verse 15. We have the best model out there. Ephesians four fifteen says this. But speaking the truth in love, and can I just tell you, speaking the truth in love doesn't mean it has to be like super always encouraging. It can be refining. Do you know what I mean? Because the whole point is is to let us grow in every way into him who is the head Christ. But you're speaking in love because you want him to reflect more of Christ. Eliphaz's message has nothing to do with him looking more like God. It has everything to do with, hey, I'm right. I'm more religious. And man, you really screwed up. You want to know why? it starts with bad theology. Eliphaz had this perspective that if he's always right, God will always bless those that are right. Man, I don't see that in my life. You want to know why? Because it's works-based. It's not love-based. All right, guys, that's Job 4, lesson 3 from the Wisdom Books. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Have a great day.